really what we want RUF to be is to be a safe place for where regardless of where you find yourself spiritually, if you're on the spiritual end of the spectrum or the skeptical end of the spectrum, we want this to be a safe place for you to come and to explore the truth claims of Christianity with us. And so what we're going to do this semester is we're going through the Gospel of Mark. It is the earliest written account about the person and life of Jesus, and it's written by one of his closest friends. And so uh, we're just taking the semester to explore that question, who is he? Who is Jesus and why in the world would that be at all important for you as a bunch of college students? So with that in mind, let me read you this passage out of Mark chapter 1. And we'll take a look at it together. It says this. Now after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, love that name, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, let's pray together before we consider it. Father, we would ask that in your mercy you would meet us. I know that uh, there are students in here from all sorts of different places as they come through these doors. Um, There are students in here that are overwhelmed with guilt. Students in here that are incredibly lonely already. There are students in here that just feel um, anxious, depressed, angry. Father, there are students in here that are excited, that, that are joyful, that are anxious to commune with you. And so regardless of where we find ourselves, we would pray that you would meet with us. Would you, would you minister us to us by your word and with your spirit and bolt into our hearts um, the news that we need to hear? And so that's our prayer. We would ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the things that I love and hate about the fall semester is the student involvement fair. You know what this is. Some of you just went through it. It's when all the different organizations on campus post up on pedestrian walkway, you know, post up behind their tables and are throwing swag at you to try to recruit you. And uh, I know why it's uh, why I hate it is because it's it's so awkward to walk through trying to scope out what all the different tables are about without making eye contact with the people behind the tables. Because you know if you make eye contact with them, they're going to rope you in and you're stuck in this conversation hearing about whatever they're talking about and you're going to put your name on some email list and be getting emails for the next four years of your college experience. And so student involvement fair, not my favorite thing. But it's great because I met some of you there. So glad you're here tonight. Um, (laughs) What's going on? though in the student involvement fair though if you really step back and think about what are we what are we doing when we're recruiting and throwing out stuff to people and trying to get people's email addresses well I, I think basically the mentality the philosophy behind those sorts of deals is that every table posted up is communicating this message we want you to be a part of what we're doing because what we're doing is really important And our cause is really awesome, and our people are really cool, and your life will be better if you're a part of us. So join us. Here's some 
swag as you go. RUF does this as well. We're guilty of it as well. But the reason I bring all this up is because, in a weird way, Jesus is doing something very similar in this passage. I don't know if you noticed it, but what he's doing is he's going up to people and he's calling them out and inviting them and recruiting them to be a part of his kingdom. And, you know, if you are a new freshman and you're hearing, you know, Jesus come up to you, as it were, and telling you and inviting you to be a part of his kingdom, you should be asking yourself, okay, what is that? What is your kingdom exactly? And why should I be a part of it? And even if I did want to be a part of it, how do I get involved in it? And so really, for the rest of our time, as we look at this little passage, those are the three questions that I think this text answers for us. What the kingdom is, why you need it, and then how you can be a part of it. Okay, so those are the three things that we're going to look at tonight. What the kingdom is, why you desperately need it, and then how you can be a part of it. Okay, first, what it is. Look at verse 15. Jesus says this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, if you grew up in church or in Christian circles, my guess is that you think that phrase, the kingdom of God, is basically the same as heaven. You know, you die and you get whisked away to heaven and God ushers you into the kingdom of God. Uh, That's not entirely true. The kingdom of God, that phrase, what that basically means is any location where God reigns as king. It's any sphere of life where God has ruling authority. This is why when Jesus comes on the scene, he says that the kingdom of God is at hand. Meaning you can touch it. It is here. It's not something that's just taking place out in the future when you die and go to heaven. But it's happening right here in the present. So to set this up to explain what I mean by this. Um, last summer, my wife Catherine, over there, if you haven't met her, my wife Catherine's over there. Catherine and I watched the movie, um, We Bought a Zoo. You remember this? came out last year. And um, uh, I guess we rented it or whatever. We're bawling our eyes out on the couch watching it. And if you've seen it, the story is pretty simple. It's about uh, this character who's played by Matt Damon. And he, wait for it, he buys a zoo. And the zoo is this, you know, old, dilapidated, you know, uh, neglected, kind of run-down zoo. And he buys it. And his, he moves in with his family to the zoo area and kind of sets up shop as its new manager. And whereas the previous manager had old ways of doing it and kind of ran the thing into the ground, he comes in and says, basically... There's a change of management. And so he makes all these changes. If you remember the movie, he kind of expands the enclosure of the bear named Buster, which is a wonderful name. So he expands the enclosure of the bear Buster. uh, He's all into like art and promoting and marketing. So he's sending out posters all over town. And basically what he's doing is said, okay, under my management, I'm going to run this thing differently. There's going to be different values that I apply to this zoo that I bought. Jesus, in the same way, when he comes on the scene, he makes this announcement. And he says, okay, there's basically a a change in management. When he shows up on the scene, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. He's announcing there's a change in the way that the world is going to be run. The old values of the world, I'm going to hijack and I'm going to replace them with my values. There's a new manager in town. So think about this. Here's what I mean. The way that the world works is this. If you want to get ahead in life, according to the values of the world, you take power. 
you climb the ladder, and you maybe even you use people to climb the ladder up to the top. That's how you get power. That's how you get ahead in life. If you want to get ahead in life, you accumulate stuff. You accumulate reputation. You accumulate popularity, whatever. Jesus says, under my management, if you want to get ahead in the world, you don't seize power, you give it away. You don't, you don't use people, you love people. You don't accumulate stuff, you are radically generous and give it away. Another example, the way that the world works is if someone hurts you, according to the value of the world, you, um, uh, you fight back. You, you hurt them back. Either you know, directly, where you just retaliate, you make them pay for it, or passively, where you're just cold and you're, you, know, you snub them. But Jesus says, under my management, if someone hurts you, the only way that that wound is going to get cured is if you forgive them. To not retaliate, but to actually love the very person that wounded you. Another example. The way that the world works is you never let anybody see your weaknesses. You hide all the bad stuff about you and you showcase all the good stuff about you because you've got, your life is a PR campaign and you've got to smile and, and show everybody that you've got it together and that you're happy all the time and you're never angry and you're never upset. But under Jesus' management, you don't hide your weakness. He says, according to my management structure, you actually showcase your weakness. The way that you are actually the most alive as a human being is when you live a life of confession and vulnerability and transparency and repentance. That's where you actually find life. So you see what he's doing? He's he's flipping every value on its head and it's completely counterintuitive to the way that we think and the way that we function. But what he's doing is when he says, when I set up shop on this earth... I'm running it according to a completely different set of values. I'm the new manager of life in general and of your life in particular. And if you actually look at the rest of this uh, story, it gets kind of fleshed out in particular. So look at verses 16 through 18. Jesus is walking beside the sea. He loves long walks in the sand. And he comes up to two fishermen on their job, Simon and Andrew. And he says, follow me. And immediately they stop what they're doing and they follow him. Okay? And then the very next little snippet, the very next scene, verses 19 through 20, it's very similar. Jesus comes up to two more fishermen, James and John, and the very same thing happens. He says, follow me. Although I think it's, I don't know, I'm, I'm a little weird, so I think this part's a little funny because they leave their dad in the boat and come with him. So I just picture the dad like, where's everyone going? But so here's why this is so crazy. If you, if you want a job in this culture, this day and age, the way that you typically get jobs nowadays is that you come to school, you get your piece of paper, you interview with companies, and they hire you based off of whether or not they want you or based off of your credentials or whatever. But that's not how you got jobs back in Jesus' day. The way that you got jobs in Jesus' day is that you were born into it. If your parents were fishermen and they had you, guess what you would be doing with your life? You would be fishing for as early as you would be able to actually fish. And because the way that it would work is that you would apprentice under your dad. And then when he got too old to kind of run the family business, you would take it over. So here's why this is so insanely crazy. Jesus comes up to these guys and he doesn't just say, hey, follow me. Like, take a smoke break for a second. Come chill with me for a sec. He is calling these people away from their identity, from their world, from everything that they've ever known. And the thing that's so shocking is that they do it. They go with him. And so what is going on in this passage is basically this. Jesus is saying this. Look, I want priority over your family. I want priority over your career. I want 
I have to be the king of your life. And everything else in your life gets demoted. I get your family. I get your, uh, your energy. I get your heart. I get your possessions. I get everything. Because everything gets gathered under that rubric of me being your king. And, and actually, um, my guess is uh, there are some of you here that would say, yes, I think Jesus is my king. I would, I would think that. I believe that. I walk through my life with that kind of in my mind. Jesus is my king, my lord, my savior, whatever. But if we took a closer look at your life, I wonder if that would actually be true. Because for some of you, he's not your king. He's something else. He's your vending machine. And here's how it works for some of you. The way that you live your life functionally, practically is this. Is that you do the good stuff. You obey the rules. You don't party. You don't cuss. You don't smeak. smeak. You don't smoke. Drink. Chew. Go with girls who do. You don't, you, don't, you don't mess around. You do the right stuff. You obey. And as a result, because you're a good little boy or a good little girl, Jesus blesses you. And the way that he blesses you is this. He answers your prayers. He makes you feel happy. He's going to give you a hot spouse later in life. He's going to bless you in these particular sorts of ways. And what you're basically doing is, is you're using Jesus to get the blessings. You're pumping in the quarters of your obedience so that this thing will pop out. The blessings, the spiritual rush, the spiritual good vibes that he's going to give you. And you know that this is you when if you're doing the stuff, you're pumping in the quarters of you're being obedient, you're being good, you're reading your Bible, you're praying, and you get really confused and really angry when he doesn't do this stuff. When he introduces suffering into your life and your life isn't happy. When he blocks you from doing this thing that you really wanted and you get frustrated and angry and confused because you're like, he's not living up to his end of the deal. Why am I pumping in the quarters of my obedience and my being good and me saying no to this and he's not making my life better or happier? What's the point? I mean, think about it. You're not going to keep pumping quarters into the vending machine if it's not spitting out the Reese's Pieces, right? Or the Reese's Pieces, however you roll. He's not your king, he's your vending machine. For some of you, that's not your, that's not your story. He, he's not your king, he's not your vending machine. For you, he's your consultant. And what I mean by this is that he gives you advice, and if it sounds good, if it makes sense, then you'll do it. Sure, that sounds good, that makes sense, I'll, I'll follow that, I'll obey that. But if he tells you to do something that doesn't make sense, or you don't like, you don't do it. It's, it's because you know, he's your consultant. He can give you opinions, but you have ultimate veto power. So you say, no, I'm not going to do that. So the way that this looks in your life is you're like, okay, sure, Jesus, yes, I will give you Sunday mornings. I'll even give you Tuesday nights. You cannot have Friday night, though. You cannot have Saturday night. That is off limits to you. Or you say, sure, okay, yeah, uh, you can have my spring break. I'll go on a mission trip or whatever. But you cannot have my sexuality. That is off limits to you. You cannot tell me how to relate to my family. You can't tell me to forgive that person that has so deeply wounded me. You, you, don't, you don't have the right to speak into my life like that. And so what you're doing, you're relating to Jesus as your consultant. He tells you one thing and you get veto power of the, uh, over him. And so he's not your king. You're still the king of your life. And so this is what the basic, this is what the kingdom of God is. It's when Jesus comes into your life and sets up shop as your king. Not your vending machine, not your consultant, but as your king. And he reorders everything about your life and everything gets 
centered around him. Now, some of you, I know, are thinking, okay, why, why in the world would I want this? Because this sounds incredibly oppressive. I mean, Jesus just bossing you around, telling you what to do. I don't feel like I I'm, I'm, can be myself anymore. I can't be free anymore. Why in the world do I need this? Well, that's the second thing we're going to look at. Why you desperately need this. And here's why. You know, I, I didn't include it in your sheet there, your little handout there with the typo on it. But... Uh, if you read through the book of Mark, for the, the, the first chapter, I didn't include it in your thing because it's long. If you read through the rest of Mark chapter 1, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find four back-to-back stories of Jesus healing people. Somebody comes up to him, heals them. He goes over to here, heals them. It's like boom, 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 rapid fire. He's just healing everybody on the spot really quickly in the first chapter of Mark. And here's my question, why? Why did Mark front load his story with all of these healing, you know, vignettes. And I think here's why. I think, I think what he's doing is the same idea behind Facebook profile pictures. You know, if you look at uh, people's profile pictures, that basically tells you everything about that person kind of in a quick one-second glance. You know, if, if, some, if somebody's profile picture is like this dude with his shirt off and he's flexing, he's muscly, and he's looking very serious, you know, he wants you to think he's strong, athletic, I, I guess, intimidating, if, if there's a picture, you know, if one of the pictures of, of a girl on a mountaintop and she's kind of looking off the distance, you know, she wants you to think, you know, she's very deep and philosophical and artistic and, you know, that's great. I mean, so whatever. So whatever picture you put up, that's what you're telling the world. This is kind of what I'm about. And, and in a very kind of similar way, Mark is packing his you know, story with all these quick pictures, this collage to tell you this is what Jesus is about, really. This is what he's all about, real quick. What's he about? He's about restoration. If you read through the first chapter of Mark, which I would encourage you to do, you're going to see outcasts being loved. You're going to see people with, like, decaying Dumbledore limbs, like, being restored. You're going to see... My Harry Potter lovers out there. Um, you're going to see relationships being that were broken being mended. What are you seeing? You're seeing when people come under Jesus' management, Jesus' kingship, people begin to experience a taste of flourishing. They, they begin to experience a taste of the way that the world ought to be. One of my um, favorite movies of all time is Goodwill Hunting old school. And uh, Robin Williams, Matt Damon again. This is a Matt Damon themed sermon for whatever reason. And um, um, the basic story is that Matt Damon plays this character who is unbelievably gifted and brilliant. But because he has so many personal issues and so many wounds from his family, and he just grew up in this really hard context, he He's trapped. He's trapped within himself. He's trapped within his own issues. And he comes under the leadership of Robin Williams. And Robin Williams is this mentor, wise, caring, loving, counselor type guy that really takes him under his wing and pours into him. And as a result, really unlocks the potential in the Matt Damon character. And he comes to flourish. He comes to really thrive as a human being. He, he gets, he, he, he's drawn out of his, himself in a way that he would never have access to. And here's the point. It's the same way with you. Whenever you have come under the leadership, the mentorship of a good coach or a good teacher or a good pastor, mentor, whatever, they've unlocked things in you that you haven't been able to unlock yourself. And you've become 
great under them. They've, they've tapped into potential you couldn't get out yourself. And the point is, Jesus is saying, look, you cannot flourish as a human being without me as that mentor in your life. That, you know, capital M mentor in your life. Your efforts to care for yourself, your efforts to make your life better will always be frustrated, will always be hopeless. When you come under my management, my leadership, you really begin to flourish. And so if you are submitting to him as your king and you're an anxious, uh, impatient person, you should be, begin to gradually see yourself becoming more grounded, more or less frantic. If you're, if you're a fearful, you know, um, angry, unforgiving person, the, the more Jesus is involved in your life, you should, be, you, you should be seeing yourself become more gracious, more gentle. You know, if you're a self-absorbed, self-hating person, you should gradually begin to see yourself becoming, you know, completely renovated. And, and that's the point. That's why you desperately need this. Is because you'll never begin, you'll never be able to flourish as a human being in the way that you were designed to without his involvement in it. So that's why you need it. That's what it is. That's why you need it. Lastly, how can you become a part of it? How can you become a part of this thing that Jesus is doing? Well, Jesus tells you, which is helpful. If you look at verse 15, he says that the way into the kingdom and the way of the kingdom are really the same thing. It's to repent and to believe. Now, I know those are really churchy words that can become completely meaningless to you if you've grown up in Christian circles. So what do those two words mean? Repent and believe. Here's what they mean. Repent. Repent basically just means turning from whatever you're trusting in back to God. Repentance does not mean I'm going to stop doing all this bad stuff and now I'm going to start doing all this good stuff. That's not repentance. You can stop being really bad and start being really good. It has nothing to do with Jesus and has nothing to do with God. Repentance is turning from whatever you were trusting in before back to him. So, you know, think about it. Repentance is not, uh, I'm going to stop cussing so much and I'm going to start reading my Bible more. I'm going to stop going to rumors and I'm going to start going to church. That's not repentance. Repentance is turning from whatever you were trusting in before, even if it was a good thing, to God, knowing that he will warmly receive you. That's repentance. What is belief? What is believing? Believing is just having nothing in your hands and embracing who God is and what he has done. That's it. Believing, faith is not conjuring up some mystical spiritual feeling. It's not... um, uh, you know, making big promises to God, saying you're going to pay him back or, uh, you know, pay off your sin or uh, you're trying to impress him and trust, you know, impress other people. Faith is just coming to God with nothing but your own sin and your own guilt and your own junk, trusting that he'll receive you. So if you see, you know, repentance and repent and believe are really just two sides of the same coin. It's, it's you leaving whatever you were loving And coming to God with all of your junk, knowing he'll receive you. Knowing he'll embrace you. Knowing he will will welcome you. You One of the best stories that I heard about this recently, um, which captures this idea of repenting and believing, is apparently this true story. 
that took place in the area that is now Belgium in the 14th century. And the story goes that there was this duke who was like the big dog in town, who had all the power, who was kind of running the kingdom, and his name was Reynold. This is a true story, apparently. You can look this up on the internet, and anything's true on the internet, right? So, Reynold is running the show in whatever this area is in Belgium, and his younger brother wants power. So he mounts this revolt seizes power, imprisons his older brother, and kind of locks him in this prison in this uh, castle. And the prison cell that this castle was in, that his older brother was put into, was pretty interesting because it wasn't like the old dungy, cramped thing that you're probably picturing. It was this spacious, comfortable cell. And it didn't have a lock on the door. And what this younger brother told the older brother was, look, hey, I know I just claim the kingdom, it's all mine now. But I want to tell you, I will promise you, you can have your job back, you can have your power back, you can have freedom back, you can have the kingdom back if you just walk out the door. There's no lock on it. Whenever you just cross the threshold and walk out, it's yours. A little bizarre, but it's actually incredibly diabolical. Because the reason he did this was his older brother could not walk out because he physically could not. He, he was uh, largely obese. And the, na- the, the doorway was narrow. I mean, you see how sinister and twisted this was. And so normally, so what this guy had to do, the, the only way he could get out and reclaim his kingdom was just if he lost weight, which was not a big deal to do in those days. This is 14th century and you're in prison. Normally you're getting kind of scraps of bread and water. And so over time you would whittle down and you'd be able to fit through the door. But here's where, I mean, this is almost like Breaking Bad, twisted Walter White stuff. Because what this guy does is he feeds his older brother like the richest, fattiest foods and just keeps serving him. And all the older brother has to do is say no to the food. And he loses weight and he steps out and he gains his kingdom back. But here's what's happened. Here's what happens. He he doesn't say no. And he eats and he eats, and he eats, and he is trapped in a cell with no lock on it for 10 years. The only way he gets out is when uh, somebody else comes and murders his brother and basically releases him. Here's why I tell you that story. I think that is an interesting picture of what repenting and believing is. Repenting is saying no to the ways of this world, your old values, your old identity, your old priorities. When you say no, you're basically saying, I'm not missing out on anything. I'm actually gaining something so much better. And my guess is the reason why so many Christians in this room and so many Christians on this campus are bored to tears with Jesus is because you're not saying no. You're not saying no to the very thing that's imprisoning you. You're indulging in the very thing that's keeping you locked up. The thing that is numbing your soul is the thing that you won't say no to. So, okay, you know, you come in here, we sing these songs, you listen to this, but you're bored out of your mind. The call and the invitation of this passage is to repent, to leave, to leave your old identity, to leave the old values, to say no, and to come and to receive a king that has already embraced you and received you because of what Jesus has done. What has Jesus done? He has called you to himself. He has called you away from this stuff. But but notice, he is not 
He will never do anything that he hasn't done. He will never ask of you something that he hasn't done first himself. So he comes up to these two guys, and he calls them away from their father. And they do. His father's chilling in the boat still. But the only reason Jesus is walking around this story to begin with is he's already left his father. When we just sang it in the song a second ago, he left his father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace. And as the story of Mark goes on, you're going to see Jesus doesn't just leave his father's presence in heaven and comes to earth. On the cross, he is ripped from the father's presence. On the cross, it's the only time Jesus does not refer to God as father. He didn't say, my father, my father, why are you forsaking me? He says, my God, my God. Why? Why didn't he say father at that moment? It's because at that moment on the cross, Jesus is being cast out of the family so that you and I could be brought in. And what this means, therefore, is that coming to God, coming to his kingdom, doesn't mean that you, you work your way in. You perform, and if you're good enough, then he'll accept you. It's not jumping through the hoops. It's not being a good little boy or girl. It's just coming as the mess that you are with the junk, with the baggage, with the regret, with the shame, with the fear, knowing that he will receive you because the promise of the gospel is that he will. So let me invite you tonight to repent, to believe, to turn from your identity, to turn from your priorities, to turn from the old ways of this world And to embrace and to receive a kingdom of flourishing, of joy, of freedom. That's the invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. We do pray, Father, that you would give us grace. Give us grace to repent, to believe, to turn from the things that we love so much. Good things. Things that we are finding our identity in. Things that we are rooting our significance in. I pray that you would enable us to uproot ourselves from from those things that may be enslaving, those things that may be uh, crushing, those things that may just fill us with fear and fill us with self-condemnation. Liberate us to a better kingdom, to a kingdom where at the helm is a king that loves to forgive, that loves to be gracious, that loves to pour out blessing and favor and kindness and mercy. Father, there's, there's no other mentor like that. So by your grace, would you help us to say no and then to embrace the ways of your son. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.